Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde implores Holly Willoughby to lose the sanctimony as she returns to the bosom of daytime TV. As he finally reveals his true identity, Henry Morris, aka The Secret Tory, tells Zoe Williams why it was time to come clean. And Oscar-nominated Juno star and trans actor Elliot Page opens up about Hollywood, abuse and coming out. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, it was a heroic attempt by Holly Willoughby to save the This Morning brand by throwing Phil under a bus. But it will take more than crystals to shift those negative forces, observes Marina Hyde. Read by Colleen Prendergast. By now, you may be all over Holly Willoughby's holier-than-thou return to This Morning, given that Guardian readers sent coverage of the event straight up Monday's most read chart. So, you'll no doubt already know that this was the first edition of the ITV daytime show that Holly has fronted since the defenestration of her former friend and co-host, Philip Schofield, for having an affair with a much younger staff member. You hear a lot about entities that would survive a nuclear apocalypse, cockroaches, scorpions, that sort of thing. On the day of a potentially catastrophic strike on Ukraine's Novokokova Dam, please add the indomitable This Morning saga to their number. Back to daytime Elsinore, then. It's notable that absolutely everyone involved in this story has behaved like a complete child, with the sole exception of the poor young runner, whose TV career seems to have been unfairly torpedoed by it all. Unlike your Phillips and your Hollies and your Amons and your Martins, only he has maintained a dignified and presumably deeply miserable silence, even as those big names many years his senior have gnashed their teeth and attempted to settle all their self-indulgent little scores in public. After this level of five-act carnage, everyone else should be cleared out and the runner himself should be given the this-morning throne. He should be the Fortinbras. But we mustn't run ahead of ourselves. Monday's this-morning drama fest 
began well before the show aired, as programme editor Martin Frizzell was asked outside his home if there was a toxic working environment on the show. I'll tell you what's toxic, and I've always found it toxic, replied Martin with an unsettling intensity. Aubergine! Do you like aubergine? Do you? Do you like aubergine? Because I don't like aubergine. It's just a personal thing. Oh dear. I'm afraid the suspicion must be that Martin regards himself as a gifted absurdist. Alas, coupled with his lank grey hair, this kind of deranged public address surely conjures weirder associations. In fact, only the lack of a warder handcuffed to Mr Frizzell convinced me I was watching a daytime tele-editor getting in a cab to work and not an individual being taken from His Majesty's prison full Sutton to answer nine further charges. Anyway, it was then on to the show proper, which began, hilariously, with Holly staring down the camera and asking the viewers, Are you okay? A question to which the only rational reply would be, Lol, are you? Good of Holly to assume viewers were feeling shaken, troubled, let down and worried, and not simply mildly enjoying the implosive drama of a show they occasionally flick on as background, if home in the morning. What followed in this opening monologue saw her mention the word Phil only once, with Willoughby thereafter fitting her erstwhile Bessie with an unrequested they pronoun. Let's see it in action. You, me and all of us at this morning gave our love and support to someone who was not telling the truth, who acted in a way that they themselves felt that they had to resign from ITV and step down from a career that they loved. That is a lot to process. Such a lot. Such a lotty lot. Indeed, the attempt to force it through the processor takes me to Holly's Lifestyle Brand, an online portal by the name of Wild Moon, where Holly seems as comfortable selling you a ceramic fragrance diffuser as she is explaining some weapons-grade cobblers about numerology. But here, perhaps, enlightenment as to the events of the past few weeks is suddenly at hand. I note from Holly's Guide to Crystals that Malachite uses vibrational force to sift out and shift any negative elements from the life you've been so brilliantly carving out for yourself. Apologies for getting into complex geological science here, but is it possible the Malachite's sifting and shifting capabilities have, in this case, somehow rebounded on its wielder. How else to explain the fact Holly is now encased in a complex crystalline structure of negative associations, with a whole host of viewers promptly sweeping on to social media to brand her patronising, self-interested and disloyal? Incredible, really, that a story of this morning's magnitude has not been accompanied by daily polling indicating precisely where the public is at with it all. That said, do we actually need meticulously weighted canvassing to tell us how the British public feels about sanctimony? In an age where even civilians are more than familiar with the celeb marketing language of image and personal brands, there is something reflexively old-fashioned that a lot of people's final verdict on this entire saga will probably be that Holly has been a poor friend to someone who may or may not deserve to be at their lowest point, but who has lost their entire career and could probably benefit from a text message.
Ironically, someone who appears to have acted solely to avoid tarnishing her own brand has, by those very actions, seen it oxidise much faster than it would have otherwise. That said, I can only congratulate Holly's agent on the now seemingly diurnal reports that the BBC is about to swoop for the daytime telly queen. The last time reports like this emerged with such regularity, Holly was in the middle of the bizarre so-called crisis precipitated by her and Phil attending the late Queen's lying in state via the journalist's entrance. Are these truly the moments the BBC thinks, let's poach her? No doubt, time will show. That was, and a big welcome back to Holly, but lose the sanctimony, it's not okay with the British public, by Marina Hyde, read by Colleen Prendergast. Next, Henry Morris, aka the secret Tory, couldn't be further from the Westminster bubble, but for years he has lampooned MPs online, attracting feverish speculation about his true identity. The secret Tory has reached the end of its natural life, but there is more to come, he assures Zoe Williams. Read by Craig Murray. Henry Morris should look a lot more stressed than he does. Though it's true, this is the first time I've met him over Zoom, and he has such confident hair that it would be hard to see uncertainty beneath it. Everyone seems to be preoccupied with my mullet, he agrees. His wife, Ellie, is two days past her due date, so their second child could show up at any minute. Into that happy but high-stakes scene, Morris dropped a hand grenade last Wednesday a video revealing that the secret Tory, a Twitter account lampooning conservatives from a thousand directions, has been him all along. Since its inception in 2019, the account, which now has nearly 200,000 followers, has been the focus of magnetised speculation. Retired anonymous conservative MP, part-time arms dealer, was how he described himself. Though everyone knew that wasn't real real, he would tweet imagined WhatsApp messages between ministers, Alice in Wonderland fantasias that disappeared into the wilds of Liz Truss's ignorance and Jacob Rees Mogg's creepiness. Or he would write accounts of conservative chaos in the style of Swift or Chaucer. Nobody was in any doubt that it was parody. But somehow, between the dense and granular detail and the playful insidery tone, people thought he was very close to the action. A special advisor, maybe. At the very least, Westminster bubble-based. Lots of Conservative MPs were following him on Twitter. People started to slide into his DMs to congratulate him on a point well landed, or make suggestions. Initially, he just enjoyed the popularity. I'd read a few books on how to write sitcoms, and there were loads of caveats, such as, if you're that person who thinks you're really funny in the pub, just be wary that you might not be that person who's funny to everyone else. I just assumed I was that guy, but then I just made people laugh straight away. Over the next year or so, though, the adage of master satirist Chris Morris started to weigh on him. If the people you're taking the piss out of are enjoying it, you're not doing it right. I'd definitely been seduced by these high-status people laughing at it. After that, I started doing it properly, which is much more satisfying, he says. Morris started masquerading too as the Papua New Guinea Courier's UK correspondent, and those columns, 
An outsider's dry amusement cut with the howling indignation of the real UK citizen having to live through this clown show are some of my favourite chronicles of our dark times. Finally, though, he decided that remaining anonymous was contributing to a fake news environment and he should out himself. We made this video to say who I was and we messed around with it for ages, he says. A school friend, Benjamin Harvey, collaborates on the videos and ended up tweeting it on Ellie's due date. He didn't think it would make an impact and instead it's gone mental. He was interviewed on the BBC in what is a telling snapshot of the state of our media. The anchor didn't really know what to make of him. What is this regular person doing inside the commentariat? Maybe I'm being unfair, but she looks at him as if he is sort of unpredictable and unsanitary, like a bird in an airport. A journalist from the Daily Mail doorstepped him. From the outside, it's quite funny. A journalist driving six hours from London to come back with a lot of wrong details and some quotes from neighbours about how nice Morris is. But it can't be fun from the inside when your wife is about to go into labour. Morris, 40, grew up in Yorkshire. His mother a teacher, his father an archaeologist. My dad is very clever. He has a lot of varied interests, both my parents have, which they seem to have passed on to me. His father persuaded him to play Fleance in Macbeth when he was 12 with Abbey Shakespeare Players, technically an Amdram company, but more of a hyper-literary cult, which introduced him to St Dogmiles Abbey in Wales where the company stages its annual performance. He now lives in a Welsh valley that, according to folklore, is the entrance to the underworld. It's paradise, he says. It was through Abbey Shakespeare players that he met his wife in his early twenties, but I was a bit wild at the time, getting into all sorts of scrapes, so she wasn't having anything to do with me then. Before that, he'd gone to a not very good comprehensive school, which I hated, then became an auxiliary nurse which is the hardest amount of work you can do for the least amount of money. Everything I've ever done since I felt lucky to do, because that was proper graft. That taught me to grow up quite fast, he says. Though stressors, not that fast. When I wasn't nursing, I was out getting hammered. He went to the University of Manchester to study comparative religion, moving to London in his late twenties, because Ellie was there. He had recently decided to... Stop being a dickhead and start doing some exercise. He arrived in London as a guy who could run 110 miles without stopping. Over the Cleveland Hills as well, there's more ascent in it than Everest. And became a personal trainer. His other notable big run was to every site where a hen harrier had been poisoned or otherwise destroyed to preserve grouse shoots. That was for Chris Packham's charity, Wild Justice. I chose a gym in North London picked up a load of clients straight away, and suddenly I was mixing with all these illustrious people. I went to London completely braced, thinking, everyone is really switched on and really fast and sharp. And I got there and thought, everyone's just the same as the people I know back home. Maybe not as funny, but they're doing much more interesting stuff. All my mates back home were really clever and sharp and working behind a till. All they'd need to do is move to London and they would be earning six figures. I know exactly what he means. There is a perception of media and political elites as operating on a higher plane, and it's absolutely warped. But I'm not sure it's about London. Isn't it about class? But I'm middle class. This is a different confidence, isn't it? Well, yes, but I think the confidence comes from private education. So it's still about class. 
Meanwhile, Ellie was working on dance music shows for BBC Radio 1, and Morris got to know loads of people in the music industry who had two or three pretty lame anecdotes about the time they did something wacky. I'd be thinking, is that all you've got? This is completely commonplace behaviour. He and Ellie started Field Manoeuvres, an old frills rave spanning a weekend, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. As his personal training business grew, he was working at a gym with two friends who were also reformed characters, they'd been in even more scrapes than I had when I was younger, and we had these baronesses, lords and millionaires coming in and out, really getting off on talking to people with accents. I kept thinking, you're sitting in the House of Lords, and I can run rings around you in an argument if I have to. I was just so underwhelmed. That sense intensified after he first started his Twitter account, a parody of the Conservative MP Marc Francois, which he did desperately hoping that some of these Tories have got more about them, but they're really not very bright. Encouraged by the Times columnist and author Catelyn Moran, who was one of his gym clients, he turned his next Twitter persona into a book, The Diary of a Secret Tory MP, almost, True Stories from the Heart of British Politics, which is really sprightly, droll, and powered by deep disillusionment. I'd always thought about politicians, there are some bad apples, but largely they are trying to make the world a better place. The more I've become immersed in it, the more I've thought, these people are proper wrongs. The 2019 Conservative MPs are self-interested, they're corrupt, they're mean-spirited, largely stupid, and as far as I can tell, filling their helicopters and firing up the shredders before they get booted out of the next election. Morris has now gone wildly out to the left, he says, and is working on another book. He is still personal training, remotely, chopping logs, learning Welsh, and working on a sitcom idea. He thinks a lot about the role of parody in the age of disinformation, the point at which exaggeration for moral effect just feeds into nobody knowing what is and isn't true. The one objective is to destroy the Tories, amplify their ludicrous behaviour and turn it into comedy by making it grotesque. The secret Tory reached the end of its natural life. But there's more to come, I feel certain. Morris is not a man who goes home before he has achieved his objective. That was The Secret Tory Unmasked. My one objective, to destroy the Tories, by Zoe Williams. Read by Craig Murray. We'll be back after this short break. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. 
That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, when the coming-of-age movie Juno made Elliot Page a star, the strain of hiding who he was almost forced him to quit acting. Coming out twice, he tells Simon Haddonstone, first as gay, then as trans, saved his life. Read by Cloud Quinn. This article includes graphic descriptions of sexual assault, so please take care while listening. Elliot Page's memoir is called Page Boy. At its heart is the story of his transitioning from an Oscar-nominated actress, best known for the wonderful coming-of-age comedy drama Juno, to one of the world's most high-profile trans men. He writes rather beautifully about gender dysphoria, top surgery, and finally finding himself. But the book is so much more than a tale of transition. Page Boy is a modern-day Hollywood Babylon, written by a sensitive soul rather than a scandalmonger. Page depicts a film industry even more rancid than we may have suspected. This is a world where it's not only the Harvey Weinsteins at the top of the pyramid, who get to abuse the young and powerless. Just about everybody seems to have a go. It's a world where most people appear to be closeted in one way or another, a world where more acting is done offset than on. It's also a love story. Sometimes unrequited, usually closeted, of course, and occasionally full-on. Throughout, Paige is looking for love, there are a dizzying number of blink-and-you-miss-them relationships, often with famous people, some named, some anonymized. He's looking for love from women he's infatuated with, his parents, and ultimately himself. For most of his life, the last has been the greatest struggle. Page is now 36. He always looked young for his age. Today he's dressed all in black, cap, hoodie, glasses and cargo pants, and could pass for mid-twenties. He's zooming from home in Toronto, and unsurprisingly is a little anxious about the book. I'm nervous, but grateful for the opportunity to have written it. Unlike most celebrities' books, there is no ghost involved. These are all his words, and it's important to him that they are. It was really healing, getting a lot of stuff out. It's been very beneficial for my relationship with my mom. It has allowed us to talk about things for the first time in a meaningful, sincere way. It has also allowed him to reflect on other relationships. When he wrote about former partners, he showed them the sections in advance. Again, he says, in many cases it has enabled them to talk in ways they never did at the time. But he admits there are some relationships that, for now at least, seem to be beyond repair. While most people in his life have embraced his coming out, first as gay, then as trans, he no longer talks to his father and stepmother. Page grew up as Ellen in Halifax, Nova Scotia, with a graphic designer father and a schoolteacher mother. As a youngster, he was a talented footballer, though not good enough to turn professional, he says. By the age of 10, he was working as a professional actor in the TV movie Pit Pony, then the Canadian TV series of the same name, and in a number of demanding roles in well-received independent films. Despite the success, he never felt right. Even as a four-year-old, he used to try to pee standing up. 
I would press on my vagina, holding it, pinching and squeezing it, hoping I could aim, he writes in Page Boy. He knew girls weren't supposed to do that, but he didn't consider himself a girl. He didn't quite know what he was. All he knew was that he felt a huge amount of discomfort and emotional pain. He self-harmed from a young age, smashing himself in the head with a hairbrush when getting ready for school, failing to recognize or accept the face staring back at him in the mirror. He cut himself, got wasted and stopped eating, but none of it did any good. He wanted to obliterate himself. Acting gave him the opportunity to get lost in pretend worlds. While he wasn't capable of untangling his own brambled emotions, he loved doing it on behalf of his characters. There was an element of escape. You're going to a place where it's your job to feel and connect as much as possible, and we live in a world that encourages us on some level not to. I was feeling things through other characters without permitting myself to do so in my life. He was 20 when he starred in Juno as the 16-year-old who found herself pregnant by her geeky cool friend Paulie Bleeker, played by Michael Sarah. Juno was a huge commercial hit. It cost around $7 million to make and took more than $230 million at the box office and won Page a Best Actress Oscar nomination. The coming-of-age comedy drama showed off Page's ability to play nuanced characters. Juno is a fabulous mix of precocious and naive, confident and vulnerable, gobby and withdrawn. The same year, Paige played another 16-year-old with heartbreaking conviction. An American crime is the horrifying true story of Sylvia Likens, who was tortured to death by a woman she was left in the care of. Two years earlier, Paige gave an extraordinary performance in Hard Candy as a 14-year-old vigilante avenging herself on a sexual predator. From the off, Paige had a rare ease in front of the camera. There was nothing actorly about his acting, which might have been part of the problem. Unsurprisingly, these roles ended up traumatizing him, not least because they echoed what was happening to him in real life. I was attracted to that intense, traumatic work at the time, he says. As a teenager who dealt with a lot of shitty, predatory behavior, it was something I was interested in tackling. After moving to Toronto at 16, he was stalked by an older male fan he had befriended on social media to the extent that he feared for his life. When he told his parents, his father said, I'm going to come to Toronto and kick your ass. In the book, Page says his father's response was even more traumatizing than the stalking. Then there was Hollywood. It's hard to know where to start with the abuse there. As a lonely kid in a new city, he was the perfect target for predators, and so it proved. Page says one director groomed him as a teenager. Eventually, the director took him to dinner, stroked his thigh under the table and told him, you have to make the move. I can't. He also describes two disturbing incidents just before he turned 18 with members of the Hard Candy production team. There was the funny, kind man who drove Paige home, then forced himself on the actor. His voice sweet, his hands on my shoulders, he guided me to the bedroom. Paige writes, I went stiff, unsure what to do as he stood tall and removed his glasses. He laid me down on the bed. Starting to remove my pants, he said, I want to eat you out. I froze. After it was over, he tried to stay in the bed with me, 
I had thawed marginally and told him he couldn't, to get out. It sounds horrifying. Apart from the power conversation and the toxicity that comes with that, it is just being a young person who's in a space with a lot of adults and in situations where people took, I don't even know the word. I was about to say advantage or awful advantage, but that just feels gross, he says now. I almost don't have the words for it because it's so fucking hard to wrap my head around why somebody wants to do that to some. He trails off. At the start of shooting Hard Candy, a female crew member offered to take Paige house hunting. I was standing in the empty living room in front of the couch when I felt her grab me. She pressed her face into mine, some version of kissing, he writes, that freezing coming over me again. The next thing I knew I was on the rug, the floor firm on my back. I didn't say no, I did not resist. I just stiffened. At the time, he never discussed the incidents with anybody. Somehow he'd conditioned himself, or been conditioned, to think it was the norm. I didn't know how to talk to people about it. I thought you just get over it and move on. When did you realize it's not something you just move on from? It took me a long time to be able to sit and fully talk about these experiences or acknowledge that they were traumatic and had a significant impact on me. He felt as if he would be making a fuss about nothing, so he brushed it off. I'd sit in therapy and talk about these things, and my therapist would go, that's a lot, that's traumatic, and I'd be like, what? What are you talking about? I don't know if that was a self-defense mechanism or just being made to feel it's not a big deal. Years after Hard Candy, Paige confided in an actor he was working with that he was gay. The actor told him he should never admit this in Hollywood and he didn't want to hear about it again. After Paige did finally come out as gay, a drunken actor told him, I'm going to fuck you to make you realize you aren't gay. I'm going to lick your asshole. It is going to taste like lime. You're not gay. He said it openly in front of some of Paige's closest friends. Power works in funny ways. Page writes, he was and still is one of the most famous actors in the world. Page is obviously aware that readers will play guessing games. You sense he would not be upset if the actor was exposed, so long as it's not by Page himself. Page stresses that Hollywood is not solely inhabited by abusers. He has made good friends in the film industry who have helped him through his toughest times. Who is the sanest person he has worked with? Page takes issue with the word, so we settle on balanced. Someone like Hugh Jackman is lovely. He's just so fucking cool. Then there's Julianne Moore. I feel so lucky to have worked with Julianne and to have her in my life. She's been an incredible friend to me, and so supportive and caring, so I've been really fortunate to have mentors in my life who have helped me a lot at certain times. When Page was cast as Sylvia Likens in An American Crime, he was struggling particularly badly with his mental health. Catherine Keener, who played Sylvia's murderer, kept him from going under. After draining days on set, he would crash at her home, drink tequila, and dance the night away. Today, he has C. Keens, his nickname for Keener, tattooed on his right biceps. She is one of the absolute greats, he says. Please tell me that making Juno was an enjoyable experience, I say. It's such an uplifting film that I'd hate to think anything nasty occurred on that set. He laughs. Yes, 
It was a great experience. It was one of the best experiences I've ever had making something. It was an incredible group of people, and I had a tremendous time. I remember Michael, Sarah, and I were like, this seems it could be kind of cool. But nobody expected it to blow up to the degree that it did. One of the many revelations in his memoir is that Paige had a relationship with Olivia Thirlby, who played Juno's dippy friend Leah, while making the movie. What did Thirlby think when you showed her the book? I think she was surprised that it was so intense for me. We didn't have the same comfort in relation to our queerness. I don't think she knew the impact that relationship had on me, and how important it was. I was inspired by her, and her ability to be herself. Paige also had a relationship with Kate Mara, who was going out with the actor Max Minghella at the time and is now married to Jamie Bell. Again, Paige had never publicly discussed their relationship before the book. He describes being infatuated with Mara and how he couldn't cope with having to share her with Minghella. Looking back, he says he didn't behave well at the time. How do you and Mara get on now? Kate is one of my closest friends. She's moderating my book event in LA. She really loved the chapter and appreciated the honesty. Paige's most closeted relationship was with an actor he refers to as Ryan. He met her while making a film and they were together for almost two years. By then, Paige was in his mid-twenties and he says most people in the industry assumed he was gay. But Ryan passed as straight and was terrified of being outed. The degree of secrecy sounds painfully dysfunctional. Paige literally hid in a closet once when room service was delivered to Ryan's hotel room. At parties, they ignored each other. Paige says Ryan couldn't cope with the shame and lies, went on to have a relationship with a cis man and broke Paige's heart in the process. Is Ryan still closeted? No, I wouldn't call it that. I gave it to Ryan to read and it was another example of getting to talk about things in a real way for the first time. And now we're buddies again. Does Ryan worry that people will be trying to guess who she is? I don't know how she feels about that deep down. I understand people will be curious. She can't care too much, because people do figure things out. The book is punishingly honest in terms of his emotional needs and search for love. He nods. Are you a romantic? Yeah, I think I am. But he says there is more to it than that. For so much of his life, he says... Love was a means of convincing himself things were okay, or justifying to himself why he was unhappy. Love was a way to escape, a way to feel less alone, a way to feel safe. I clearly didn't love myself. I'd cling on and then end up in these codependent relationships, or getting completely lost in Kate and not staying centered on any level. I think it was a way of avoiding myself, going from one relationship to the next. His voice swabbles. This is the first time in my life I've been happy and able to just be on my own. The Hollywood that Paige describes is frozen in time. It could be the 1950s, the same level of control, paranoia, abuse, the same homophobia, and the same blinkered argument. If the fans know you're gay, they won't believe you when you play a heterosexual, though this is rarely the case when heterosexuals play gay characters. It's hardly surprising in this culture that so few gay stars have come out. I can obviously only speak to my experience, but yes, my experience is that there was intense pressure to be not only closeted, but to act and appear and perform like someone I wasn't and someone I'm not. 
cis, trans, whatever, it doesn't matter. The act of being told not to be your authentic self was a constant, and quite frankly, it made me extremely unwell. I think back to the degree of how closeted I was, and I'm just like, wow. It's like watching a movie in my head. It was so extreme, and so were the feelings. I believed at certain points, this is what my entire life is going to be. He had never held a partner's hand in public. Never brought a girlfriend to an event, always got separate rooms. There was this constant, inherent anxiety when I was out at dinner. You become so profoundly isolated as a person, and also your relationship becomes very isolated. You're in this bubble together. Did it make you mentally unwell? Yeah, mentally ill, depression and anxiety. But it also manifests itself physically. Whether it's vicious panic attacks, stomach issues difficulties eating, chronic fatigue, just feeling in certain moments of my life it was very hard to function and operate. Did you ever want to walk away from it all? Absolutely, multiple times. And did you ever? Yeah. By 2010, he was being cast in big-budget films such as Christopher Nolan's Inception, and he decided he'd had enough. The funny thing is, he says he had a great time making Inception, But after I finished that movie, I was in Los Angeles, and I just started packing my apartment. I was like, I have to go back to Nova Scotia. I don't think I want to act anymore. I loved working with Chris Nolan and a great cast, but as a person, I was just so not okay. I felt really guilty for feeling that. Here you are with all that dreams are made of. How the fuck could I possibly feel this way? I'm such an asshole. How can I be so ungrateful? I didn't understand why I was so profoundly uncomfortable and feeling like this, with all this privilege allowing me to do what I thought I wanted to do. But how I was feeling in my body, and being closeted, was eating at me to a degree that I wasn't sure I wanted to do it anymore. He took some time off, and returned in 2012 with Woody Allen's To Roam With Love. A couple of years later, aged 26, he came out for the first time as gay. That decision was scary and intense. Did it change the way the film industry regarded you when it came to casting? I mean, probably. I'm not in the rooms where those people are having those conversations, but I would imagine so. Six years later, in 2020, he came out as trans and changed his name to Elliot. E.T. is one of his favourite films. As a youngster, he wanted to look like the film's protagonist, Elliot, and he has a tattoo on his biceps that says, EP phone home. He had never stopped questioning how he identified, and this intensified in the years between coming out as gay and trans. In the Netflix superhero series The Umbrella Academy, Paige plays a character who transitions from Vanya to Victor and writes a warts and all memoir about his family. Is this a coincidence? He says the memoir element is. The character was created before he wrote Page Boy, but obviously the trans element is not. When Victor tells his superhero siblings he has transitioned, they respond with approval verging on indifference. Cool. I'm good with it. Yeah, me too, they say, unfazed. Was it as easy for you to tell friends and loved ones when you transitioned? For people super close to me, it was definitely not shocking. Because you'd been talking about it for so long? Yes, I was hanging out with a friend the other day and they were telling me something I said when I was 27 and we were working together. I realised just how much I had been talking about it. For years. 
and then proceeding to talk myself out of it. Why did you talk yourself out of it? He pauses. Um, gosh, it came mostly from internalized shame, internalized transphobia. I was overwhelmed by the fact that I was a known actor, and what is that going to mean? I was trying to wrap my head around it. In terms of how people reacted to you, or in terms of your work? Both. But before coming out as queer in 2014, I'd already made the decision that living my life, to me, was going to be more important than being in movies. I was like, what am I doing? This is my one chance to be alive. Like, this just isn't fucking worth it. It's just not. So I thought less about the work and more about what does it mean to transition publicly and felt overwhelmed by it. He tried to convince himself he could make do by wearing tighter sports bras to flatten his chest and saying nothing publicly. Try as he might, he says, the issue would not go away. It just kept coming up. It was not letting go. In Pageboy, he says he doesn't think he would be here today if he hadn't transitioned. While his relationship with his mother has never been better, he writes in the book with huge regret and some anger about his father and stepmother's inability to accept him. To the extent, he says, that his father has supported transphobic comments about Paige. I ask if they have seen the book. If it's possible, I'd love not to talk about my dad and Linda, he says, with endearing politeness. There's been no reconciliation? No. Do you think filmmakers are less willing to cast you since your transition? Again, it's so tricky because I'm not in the rooms where people are chatting. But, he says, he's got more than enough to be getting on with. He's just worked on an improvised film directed by Dominic Savage, creator of Channel 4's I Am... series. That was a highlight of my life as an actor. He has started his own production company, dedicated to telling stories about and by marginalized people, and hopes to do more writing. A while ago, he said he fancied having children. Now, he says, that's not a priority. I'm trying to embrace the fact that I feel good on my own, and that's very important for me. He suddenly giggles. But I'm definitely not against falling in love. I think now I'm a little bit more mature and centered. He pauses. I think. We hear so much about gender dysphoria, I say. Have you experienced any body euphoria since transitioning? His face creases into an ecstatic smile. To be honest, Simon, I experience it every single day when I wake up in the morning. When I say that I was always consumed by discomfort, I mean it. So the fact that I get up in the morning and get out of bed and stretch like this, he extends his arms to their full length. That, to me, is body euphoria. Soon after transitioning, he showed off his new six-pack. Does he still have it? Yes, he says proudly. Working out this morning without my shirt on and just being sweaty and jumping in the shower, just being able to be present in my body and the joy of it. When I say I never thought I'd feel this way, I really, really mean that. I never thought I would just feel, oh, here I am and I'm going about my day. So for me, body euphoria is the most obvious stuff. Getting out of the shower, seeing myself in the mirror, walking down the street with my shoulders back, and just feeling like I can engage with the world in a present way. It's great to see you in such a good place, I say. Listen, Paige says, he knows there will be bad days and plenty of them. I'm a human being, of course we all have our days, but they won't even be comparable to how I felt before. 
another ecstatic smile. Not even comparable, he says. That was Juno star Elliot Page on Hollywood, Abuse and Coming Out. There was intense pressure to be closeted by Simon Hattonstone. Read by Cloud Quinn. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this piece, we have included details of helplines you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Colleen Prendergast, Cloud Quinn and Craig Murray and presented by me, Savannah Ayole-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.